Hello and welcome to The Personhood Project. I'm your host, Aaron Tyler Hand. In this podcast, we explore poetry's ability to help process trauma, spur personal growth, and reduce recidivism in the carceral system. If these topics are of interest to you, we ask that you follow us on Twitter and subscribe wherever you are currently listening. Joining me today is Ashia Ajani, a poet, environmental educator, and cultural preservationist from Denver, Colorado. They are the author of the chapbook, We Bleed Like Mango, which came out in 2017, as well as their first full-length collection, Heirloom, which was released in April of this year by Right Bloody Publishing. Thank you so much for joining me, Ashia. Thank you for having me, Aaron. I just want to start off by thanking you for reaching out and being part of this podcast. As I've mentioned on here before, it's typically kind of me hunting down people and asking if they want to be part of this and feel like such gratitude for people when they actually reach out to me and just ask to be part of this. It just just shows that like the, the street isn't one way, like people are interested in being in part of this work and helping out. So thank you so much for reaching out. Absolutely. I love the message and the purpose behind the podcast. And as someone whose family was very much touched by incarceration and issues of police violence, it's really important, you know, for me and and for us to continue to have these conversations. Uh, So I feel very grateful to be part of it. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry about your family's history, but hopefully in our conversations, we can kind of explore things around incarceration and how we can help change things for the future. Before we get to that, though, your debut collection did come out this year. So I don't know if you wanted to take a minute to kind of let our listeners know just what they could expect when reading Heirloom. Yeah, absolutely. So I think a lot about inheritance, um, obviously the title, Mm -hmm. but particularly from an ecological perspective, my background as an environmental educator really grounds a lot of my work, uh, knowing a lot about issues of environmental inequality, issues of environmental injustice. I grew up seeing a lot of them. Um, My family dealt with a lot of environmental injustices. And so I was thinking a lot about how do you measure what you can pass down to future generations Mm. if so much of your relationship to environment has been through this lens of oppression and um, exclusion. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the poems in this book are trying to like, to deal with those very heavy feelings of exclusion, of ostracization, of forced migration due to environmental and, you know, cultural and sociopolitical problems and issues, but also want to reveal some of the ingrained and inherent insurgent knowledge of Black communities that we've built up mm-hmm. as was necessary um, from Mississippi to Detroit, Michigan, to Denver, Colorado, where my mom ended up. And then also kind of like looking to where I am now. I live in the Bay Area, California. I think of like, oh my gosh, it's like, wow, we moved all of this way. And here I am looking at another <laughs> sea, another like endless possibility Um, of change, of drought, of environmental vulnerability. Mm -hmm. How do you like grapple with that? So just, you know, some light stuff (laughs) in the book. Yeah, (laughs) totally. I don't want to dive quite into the content yet, but we will. Um, This is mostly for some of the people in our program. You know, we've been doing this for about a year and a half now. And, you know, some of the people in a program are really interested in compiling their work and seeing how it looks as a whole. And as someone kind of who has just had their first collection come out, 
I was hoping you could share a little bit on what it's like compiling a collection, maybe any tips and tricks you can offer about like how things fit together. Uh, I always like to help, you know, the people in our program think of new ideas and how to work through things and especially with the help of the guests on this podcast. So if you have any recommendations or any suggestions for kind of compiling a first collection, that would be great. Totally. Um, I read a lot Mm -hmm. and I think that really helped me think about how you put things together. Mm-hmm. I read just like a lot of different poetry books. I'm a big fan of Sandra Cisneros, Terrence Hayes, Joshua Bennett, Damani Thomas, really just like a lot of stuff that I am a big fan of, but I didn't think, and even though I think that my work is like separate from, I was really curious about how they imagine their collections because a lot of their work is very cohesive. Um, Mm -hmm. And even if the poems are very different, there is like that kind of connecting theme um, in the work. And so once I realized like I had enough poems that were in that sort of cohesive narrative, it took a really long time. I'm not going to lie. I mean, like there was like a big gap between like when I did my self-published chat book and then when I'm doing this one now. Mm -hmm. And I, tossed a lot of poems. Um, I rearranged a lot of stuff. But I think like reading and seeing how other people formulate their work helped me think about how I relate to my own work. And then also just printing things out or just writing things out on paper and just like putting them on the floor, on the wall, and just seeing how they lay together, reading them out loud, how they flow together, adjusting Mm -hmm. after that um, really was super helpful. Yeah, totally. I think that that definitely makes sense. Just being kind of able to visualize things. It's easy to like flip pages and, you know, kind of read things, but it's another to have it all laid out in front of you as like, you know, almost a collage of the work and seeing how the collage, you know, in a sense fits together. Yeah, that's great. All right. Kind of diving into the content of Heirloom and your writing in general. You mentioned a lot of it's about exclusion and kind of a forced migration. And I know you do a lot of work in environmentalism. So I'm hoping you can kind of talk about this intersection between environmental justice and social harm. And I feel like it's a topic that's not talked about much. And, you know, just I'm hoping you can kind of open the door for people who can kind of see these things more. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, this is like one of my favorite topics to talk about. So thank <laughs> you. Yeah. So I'm I'm trying to think about where I want to where I want to start. I know it's so, a big subject. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I usually like to ground this conversation in that there's um, traditional ecological knowledge, and then there's also a lot of scientific studies around you know the, these intersections, and I think that both are equally valid and both are equally important. Some might be more applicable than the other, depending on the context that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. But I know one thing that really helped make a connection for some folks in my life was that I talked about how there was a study that came out of UC Davis, I believe, I think in 2020, that was looking at how rates of environmental harm are like equally correlated with rates of police violence. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And so usually what happens is that communities are already increasingly environmentally vulnerable. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is that they don't have great environmental resources. So these are oftentimes communities that are very concrete dense. There's a lot of asphalt that contributes to this thing called the urban heat island effect, which can, especially if you have a lot of people who um, are on 
a lot of medication or have heart problems or who have um, respiratory issues that can contribute to health issues in that community. Oftentimes, these are communities where there is little trash pickup. Um, there are high rates um, of houselessness. Um, and oftentimes, these are communities that the kind of father of environmental justice, Robert Bullard, would call a sacrifice zone. Mm -hmm. It's a zone where people um, are just expected to live and deal with these conditions. Mm. Obviously, people don't want to live and deal with these conditions. No. So what happens a lot of times there's um, a lot, of, and usually it's very intracommunally, but mm -hmm. as violence tends to be um, a lot of um, harm and crime happens intracommunally, usually as a result of those lack of resources. And then that's when heavy police presence um, is then mm -hmm. deployed in order to subdue those populations. Mm -hmm. And we see this in places like we saw this very much um, in Katrina, the police response um, in lower income communities versus Versus wealthier communities. I see this a lot, you know, in Denver, Colorado, depending on where you're living, like if you're on the north side or on the west side, obviously you have a very different relationship with police than you do if you're living in a more affluent community. Mm -hmm. And so, and also in Detroit, which uh, is where a lot of my family is from, you see a lot of police violence. And so there's this direct correlation between environmental neglect and police violence. Usually then what happens is as people are incarcerated, they then experience another form of environmental violence and another form of environmental harm. Because, and I, I think this, it really depends on the state. I actually, had, no, 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 not for this one. Most people who are incarcerated cannot file environmental justice claims. So if they mm. think that environmental um, injustices are happening in their facility, they don't really have a recourse in order to report that as an environmental injustice. They can report it in other forms, but they cannot report it as an environmental injustice. This also gets into the issue of like workplace violations. A lot of incarcerated people are deployed after a huge environmental disaster, after a huge natural disaster, after after hurricanes, we saw what was happening in California with the wildfires. And so then if you're constantly being put in opposition to environment, it's very hard to envision or adopt something as, you know, environmental wellness. So if you are already put in opposition to environment, like if you're kind of if you're always fighting or if you're always experiencing environmental burdens, it's really hard for you to develop like um, a connection I won't say that, but I think it's it's very hard to see environment as something other than something you're fighting against. Mm -hmm. And so kind of also bringing it back, you know, to the scientific studies, there's been a lot of psychological studies saying that green space is really, really important for human mm -hmm. um, development. It's important for mood. It's important for wellness, both mentally and physically. And if you're constantly denied that, what kind of, you know, like life are we giving people, you know, and, and what kind of, what are you telling people about their worth if you are constantly denying them green space and if you're and not even just green space but like meaningful engagement with the environment like being able to just enjoy birdsong or to garden or to be surrounded by animals in a meaningful way a lot of these things i I'm talking about not only in my book, but also, you know, just in life. Um, this is my job. <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> so great. thinking about ways in which we can sort of like, first, I think awareness is super important. Mm -hmm. Even with some of the like students that I work with, 
a lot of them like don't like going outside (laughs) every time we're like supposed to do garden stuff they're like oh can I just like sit or like oh I don't like can I go back to the classroom (laughs) and so I think that there has to do there there's a lot of healing that has to happen Mm -hmm. you know about outdoor and and environmental space Um, a lot of re-education and reaffirmation of our connection to nature Mm -hmm. is super important because I think we're living in an era where we are constantly we i mean we spend 80% of our lives indoors yeah and that's not even including you know individuals who are incarcerated who are who mm-hmm. might be spending more than that so i think there yeah a lot of paradigm shifts needs to happen <laughs> and that's also what the book is kind of talking about Oh, I mean, that's great. I mean, I appreciate when we don't just talk about writing on here, we talk about how it intersects with so many other things. So I mean, like, it's clear that where your interest in your poems and heirloom came from is your connection to the environment and your, you know, the work that you're kind of doing on a daily basis. So it's really cool to see how your life and your poetry kind of intersect with one another. And often when I read a poetry collection, like the most successful ones, or maybe my favorite ones are the ones when it's like clear that the writer is passionate about what they're talking about. Like there's, there's something in their lives that are motivating them to write about it. And that passion is the driving force that makes me want to keep reading it because I want to see what they're, what is motivating them. So these conversations are great and I appreciate you sharing all that. I want to comment on you were talking about you know the reconnection to nature and outdoors, and I think about in one of the facilities we go to, and you know we teach in the outdoor space that the men get is probably like a this is a rough guess like a twenty by twenty concrete pad that is surrounded on all four sides by buildings, so you get like the sky above, but that's about all the like nature you get is just looking up at the sky, so. I mean, I'm not sure if you know how to answer this or, you know, you know an answer for this, but if you do, that would be great. If you have any like tips or any ideas for ways to like reconnect with nature, if they're not able to actually be out in the nature, do you know of, I mean, it's not an easy thing to think of, you know, they have connections to like, not really iPads, but some like tablets that they can use, but yeah, anything, any kind of recommendation just to help people be like, reconnect with nature when it's so much taken away from them. Right. Wow. Yeah. I think about this a lot because part of, I was doing a project just looking at green space in correctional facilities. Oh, interesting. In some areas, I think a lot of it is like Oregon, maybe some places in California, I think maybe Connecticut. There has been like a push for more green space in facilities Mm -hmm. because of, you know, kind of like what we're talking about because Mm -hmm. nature can be very calming. I mean, it's good for your health, um, Mm -hmm. both mentally and physically. And so I'm like, yay, asterisk, Mm -hmm. because I think sometimes that just continues to perpetuate a larger problem of, you know, mass incarceration, but just kind of like putting a nice little bow on it. It's like, yeah, you know, like you're incarcerated, but you know, we have like this lawn that you can like (laughs) go to, or we have this garden space that you can go to, which I think is important because I think that, you know, I think that's a human right to have, you know, access to that. Um, And I think that it's definitely like a violation of human rights to just, in so many facilities, again, just like you said, like this concrete pad, Mm -hmm. maybe you see this guy, maybe there's even like cage above it where you can't even like really like 
see beyond that. So I have like kind of like mixed feelings. I do think that there should be increased green space just because a lot of studies have seen, again, like a lesser rate of recidivism. You know, Mm -hmm. if there's more access to green space, if people can garden, if people can go outside. There has been some, I think, playing around with like virtual green space or like there's like this blue room, I think, in or in a facility in Oregon where they just basically have like images of nature. It's supposed to be like a calming space. But the way that it's described, it does feel somewhat punitive because people only go in it when they're having like major like freakouts. Yeah. So I think sometimes the way that it gets used is it gets twisted by like the system that's already in place. Mm-hmm. I do think that it's important if we are, if we understand, you know, the situation that we are in now, mass incarceration, you know, a lot of people who are in these facilities obviously need to be treated you know, like human beings. Totally. Yeah, totally for the expansive expansion of green space. I am then curious, you know, about what moves beyond that. I totally understand that, like wanting to celebrate a little bit on one hand, but the other hand being like, yeah, but this is still like the carceral system. I mean, I still, I think of that every week when I'm going in there and working with the guys, you know, like I'm, I'm making a relationship with, you know, the facilitators at the facilities we go to and with the guards. And it's just like, these aren't the people I would expect myself to be kind of making relationships with as someone, I mean, maybe this is too much to share, but I'll, I'll just go with it anyway. But, you know, I believe that, I, I think that everyone should believe that like the ultimate goal should be abolition. Like we should have like, the ultimate goal should be like, yeah, no prisons should be necessary. Like we should do everything we can to where we don't actually need the facilities. But I, on the other hand, completely understand that we are stuck in a, cycle of incarceration and you know me wanting to do this is like how can we do bring like some humanity inside the system if it's there already so it's like at the one of the facilities we go to the classes that are offered to them are aa bible study and then my poetry slash you know like storytelling classes and it's like part of me is like oh man i'm working with this like abusive system and the other part of me is like if I'm not, then literally, like, there's no one else doing it, and I feel so bad about it. So, yeah, I, I understand that kind of like, eh, but 100%, like, more green spaces, more alternatives, more anything. I see, you know, the the guys I see on a weekly basis and just how they're stuck in, you know, these these blocks and how there's not even a window. The only windows look out into the guard area, so it's just like, I don't know, they say, like, Oh, how's the weather? Oh, next time you're in here, bring me some Chick-fil-A. You know, just like all these things that are like these small connections to the the outside world. And granted, Chick-fil-A isn't really nature, but it's still like that idea of like just connecting to something that is part of the larger nature out there that is so important to people who never see it. Yeah, Just being able to provide something to them, whether it is, you know, yard time or anything is so important. I think creativity, I mean, I'm glad that you brought up the creative piece because I think creativity is so important too. Like, even if it's just being able to draw or paint, you know, Mm -hmm. having like those like really cool like coloring books and have all of these different, like there's ones that I know of like the different national parks, which are like super Mm -hmm. cool to be able to like have photos of like family, like, you know, like and have photos of green space and like recreate that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess, you know, also, like you said, like facilitating that outside connection as well. Yeah, even the smallest thing and 
because you think if it's completely taken away from you, you know, as a person who is incarcerated, like how can you reclaim your space, even if it's the smallest way, even if it's photos or um, coloring books or something where you're creating that kind of natural space for yourself. So yeah, that's good to think about. And I'm going to have to look into getting them some of those craft books. That would be great. (laughs) Typically when we hear about these, you know, these are kind of large topics that whether typically people might hear about them on the news or read about them on Twitter or something about that, you know, while you're in the educational space and you're sharing information there. I'm curious about the power of poetry to help shine light on some of these issues and just kind of your perspective on poetry as a tool to help like, you know, bring some of these issues to light. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I know for me, I really got into poetry as like a processing tool. Mm -hmm. I'm an only child. I read a lot. (laughs) I was such a nerd. And so I like, I spent a lot of time by myself. And so I spent a lot of time either reading outside or writing or some combination of all three. Mm -hmm. And so poetry was just like a way, almost like it was like a way for me to talk to myself, to have a conversation with myself to process a lot of like really big feelings. But then once I started getting into the slam scene, I was on a youth slam team here in Denver. I saw that other people were kind of almost doing this like community processing, Mm -hmm. which was like so cool because I felt like I was for the longest, I was doing this individual processing. And then I got to do this sort of like community sharing of narratives, meeting people from so many different backgrounds, um, exchanging information, exchanging ideas. And that was really powerful because I think sometimes when you're trying to talk about certain issues and you're met with resistance, it's because people like don't. A lot of times they're like, well, how does this affect you? Um, you know, like, <laughs> totally. and poetry is oftentimes a way for it to, for it to be very deeply personal. Mm-hmm. And then of course, you know, kind of like connecting like the personal to the political. Mm-hmm. And then also just thinking about my work in the environmental and like climate space. I, I tell this to like my students all the time and I love doing this. I love, we process graphs together. We process reports together. We learn how to read that like really hard scientific data which I think is super valuable and I think needs to be made so much more accessible to a lot of people. Like when the IPCC report comes out, no, like no, nobody's taking the time to, re- unless you are like really deep in that, like nobody's yeah. taking, cause it's so long, you know, and it's, mm-hmm. it's so many words that like, if you, if you don't have like the knowledge, if you don't have like the understanding, like it, it just kind of reads like, okay, great. But if you're doing this sort of climate storytelling, if you're hearing these narratives about people who have been affected by climate change, and that's something that I challenge like some of my college students to do. I was like, for your midterm, I just want you to write your climate story. A lot of them were like, well, I don't have a climate story. And I would be like, you would probably be surprised. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. almost every single person has a climate story in some capacity. It can be something as like, oh, one time our basement flooded to, to some people like, our parents like literally had to flee, you know, our home country because like it was just like a no longer it, like it's underwater now. Mm-hmm. It's like almost that range. Um, and then once you start to like have people tap into that and tap into that emotional like story side of things, I think then people are like, oh, wow, like, yeah, this is a really big prevalent issue that's affecting so many people that I didn't even realize because yeah, you know, I can look and say, okay, we need to halt to 2.5 degrees Celsius how, what does that mean for me? Like, you know, (laughs) and, and, but then if you're like, yeah, um, I live in a community where like 
60% of the people have asthma and the factory like is like right up the street, then, you know, you start to see these more like place-based and these local moments of like, you know, like disruption and and insurrection Mm -hmm. um, and processing. Totally. Yeah. Definitely think about the processing tool and you kind of like the making it personal because poetry for me definitely feels super personal. I mean, if you can take on a persona or however you kind of want to see it, but there still feels deeply personal, no matter whether the I is like the speaker or, or like the person actually writing the poem, poetry is personal period. Yeah. So it makes sense that like, how can I connect this large concept and then make it to where someone can feel like connected to it? Yeah. That's such a cool way of thinking about it. Thank you. One other question I wanted to talk about, and it kind of relates, you know, talking about poetry, talking about even going in and using coloring books or the maybe even the blue room that you mentioned earlier. In our preliminary interview, you said imagination is one of the most powerful tools uh, we have against despair. And I'd love to hear about you talking more about the power of imagination as well. I've been thinking actually a lot about this because in some of my high school classes, we have like, you know, opening circle questions. And mm-hmm. one of the opening circle questions was imagine like a perfect world. Just imagine a perfect world. I don't give them any prompt beyond that. What will we need to do to get there? And of course, you know, everybody's going to have a different vision of what that perfect mm-hmm. world looks like. Everybody was stuck. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody really knew. Like, you know, a couple people in, in their notebooks, just like, you know, kind of like thinking through things. But a lot of people were like, uh, what do you mean? Like, I don't know. Like, I don't know what you want me to say, (laughs) which is worrisome to me. It's really Mm -hmm. worrisome, especially as like young people. Like I remember when I was in middle school, high school. And I think this is also, you know, just like a lot of my like fantasy background because I read a lot of fantasy books when I was in Nice. Love that. (laughs) I was super into world building. Even when I was young, I was looking around. I was like, uh, this, I don't want it. I want something a lot different. I wanted something a lot better. And was like thinking about different ways to move to that. I think it's really worrisome when you can't imagine a future beyond the one that we have now. Like that's really worrisome. Totally. totally. Imagination. I can't, I can't, I think it was like from some movie. I can't remember, but he's, he's just like, kind of like, you know, like they can't like take what's in here and like as corny as it's like, it's yeah. true. Like that you can't take what's like in your brain, like, you know, and, and as soon as you start to kind of give up that, if you give up that imagination, I think that that's really, you're just kind of like, you're acquiescing to, mm-hmm. to what, what's happening. And, and that, that's so sad. Um, and I, and, totally. and it's like really, I think it's really bad when so many people are getting to that point. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's when you know stuff needs to change. And that's when you know that like, there's like really important action to be taken. That's not to say that I don't get sad and, and like discouraged and like really like, I mean, again, I read the latest like IPCC report and uh, intergovernment panel um, on climate change. Um, and I was like, Wow, that's really stressful. Um, I read a lot of like really stressful climate news. Yeah. I'm not saying that it doesn't make me sad and that I don't get like, sometimes I just want to like go to bed <laughs> um, and like not get up for a while. I also, I think p- one of my things is that I love life a lot. Yeah. And I'm very blessed to live here and I'm very blessed to like experience the life that I have. And I'm very blessed to be surrounded by the people that I'm surrounded by. I think of like June Jordan's Intifada Incantation. I said, I loved you and I wanted genocide to stop. And she lists all these things about like what love makes us do. Mm-hmm. And even when we're like carrying all of this grief and all this anguish and all this hurt inside of us, we still have people around us, you know, that we care about, that we want to like, that we want to live better. And so I think imagination and being able to harness that imagination and not just harness that imagination, 
like in here, but like in community and in action is super, super powerful. Totally. Oh, that's such a beautiful thing to think about. And just the the work of putting in work on your own imagination, like, you know, it's sad to think about being in places or, you know, living maybe where society kind of pushes away from your imagination or pushes against your imagination. So even the idea of like reclaiming that space in your own brain, is just like its own act of rebellion, which is kind of cool to think about too. I'd love to take this time to transition to the second part of our podcast. So for first time listeners, the personhood project is more than just this podcast. We work with the poets who come on the program to create a poet profile that creates bios of them, as well as three poems that they shared with us. And then we take those poet profiles and poems into our facilities and work with incarcerated workers to kind of teach on that poet. And then we take poems that were inspired by the poet and we bring them on here. And then we talk about them and praise them. To start off, I was going to have Ashia read the three poems that they donated to us to take into the classroom. So if you want to start and read your poem running, that would be amazing. All right. This is my poem running. Once again, I return to the outdoors in search of cleaner breath. My lungs, a peripatetic duo foraging for whatever fills, collapses or relieves. In the South, breath is heavy. Humid palpitations mark this flesh ripe for taking. This exhalation is not cheap. The flight in these legs a vestigial burden passed down generations of restlessness. We stay moving. It is harder to kill a thing in constant motion. I say no names for fear I will summon something wicked. I do not look at what hunts me. Rather, I embrace the freedom of exodus. When one of us runs, the rest follow. It is an unspoken bond of reluctant prey. You would think with everyone trapped in their houses, the predators would take a break. Even Jesus got one day of rest. Two bullets hunt and run behind me. The asphalt loves this body too much for return. Whiteness rewrites my breath into blood, into ash. Self-deputized, but whatever golden emanations they deem worthy of judgment. These violent beasts reclaim open space that was never theirs to covet. My feet shift with a sole desire to mind my business and keep it pushing. My heart, a rustle in the wilderness sought for horrific consumption. I do not want to be surveilled. I just want to feel the cool air wrapped around my black body and for once feel free to exhale. Thank you so much. Wow, such a powerful piece. Also for those first time listeners, um, so we create writing prompts around the poet's poems and those writing prompts as well as the poems inspired by the poet can be found on our website, roughdrafttx.org. I'm going to read the writing prompt that we took into the classroom based around this poem. Shia uses running to reflect on their life and the tragic news of Amand Arbery. 
As a black person who enjoys the outdoors, Ashia found a deeper connection to and emphasized with Amand in a way that led to this desire to write this poem. Think of a recent news story that you saw on TV or recently read about that you felt a deep connection to. It could be a tragic story like that of Amand Arbery, or it could be of something happier. Whatever that story is, write about it and what drew you to it. That's a cool prompt. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> it's one of my favorite parts is kind of taking people's work and seeing how I can inspire others to write something around it. Mm-hmm. Would you want to read your second poem, Porch? Sure. Um, so a little bit about Porch. Fannie Lou Hamer was one of the like uh, seminal figures that introduced me to black environmentalism. She had this cooperative called Freedom Farm where they had like this pig farm, um, exchange pigs. They grew a lot of really hardy vegetables and it was all um, black cooperatively owned. And I, yeah, just really love the message of her work. And I particularly love this quote that opens up the poem. Um, And so I will read the quote and then the poem right now. I keep a shotgun in every corner of my bedroom. And the first cracker even looks like he wants to throw some dynamite on my porch. Won't write his mama again. (laughs) Fannie Lou Hamer. I keep a piece of myself on the porch. Don't test me. I have everything ripped from my flesh and still fix my gums to smile at those who wish me harm. Don't try it. I am a nigga who comes from niggas and as such, I do not play. This body owns nothing, exists everywhere. You can't kill me. All the fullness in the world collides within my frame. A grand unraveling weathers me mighty vengeful. Can you say the same? My love shatters anything that has tried to cause me harm. Ceremony predates survival. So leave my flowers at the doorstep and dance until your heart bursts into a thousand new iterations of godliness. Fill my cup with lilac wine where one can pull a Nina Kroon through the window until a swan song of rage fills the walls and covers me in honeysuckle rose. Give me all that I desire or nothing at all. I want a new wig. I want a plot of land. I want a small wind that carries me through the rest of forever. I am owed at least that. Thank you so much. Is Porch in Heirloom? It is. Mm -hmm. I think everyone, I mean, you should pick up Heirloom regardless, but you should pick it up just to see the shape of Porch. So it's kind of just to kind of describe for people listening. um, All the lines are center aligned and Ashia kind of laid it out in a way to where it almost feels like it's making a sphere on the page and just something about that spherical shape just like adds this like really cool element to the piece. So I, yeah, I just really recommend picking it up so you can have a look at this piece. It's so cool. Thank you. I'm going to read the writing prompt inspired by Porch. The heat of Porch, or in other words, the moment of the poem that carries the most weight, comes at the end of the poem when the speaker starts to list their desires. These final lines form a litany that causes a ramping up of tension for the reader. This tension allows the speaker to sternly demand what should be rightfully theirs. Right now in life, 
What are your biggest desires? Which needs are not getting met? Write a poem that lists these desires and talks about why they are owed to you. Would you read your final poem, please? Life Cycle? Absolutely. A little bit about Life Cycle. This is, I think this is the longest piece in Heirloom. Um, This is the longest piece in my collection. And I mean, it is the life cycle. It's talking about, you know, from beginning to end. And if there even really is an end, um, Mm -hmm. especially in a lot of the um, things that we buy and discard. um, Where does it go? Where do we go? Yeah. (laughs) This is life cycle. America is a factory. My father builds security cameras from discarded junk phones. Their cracked screens, a subterranean stained glass, burgeoning blessings. Come one, come all if you dare. He welds a fine line between surveillance and security. My father is no stranger to a gun. My father believes in a self-proclaimed rapture. The hills have eyes. My father's lenses thicken as his vision differs, defers. At the end of the world, he hopes to patent his despair. America is a landfill. Underwater bloodline brined, it's soured. My neighbor pours the leftover liquid from a pot of greens into his garden. Billowing green stink arises, stains room for ripening. Black folks despise waste. The last drops of crown peach in the dog's water bowl for taste. The plastic bags under my auntie's kitchen cabinet, exceptional cushioning for our endangered shadows. Never afforded the softness of packing peanuts. Is the soul biodegradable? Can it be upcycled? At least we still have granny's house. Wrap your apparitions in polyester coves, send them out to ocean. May they forever exist in sedimentary purgatory, float, floating on. In this sense, we never rest. In this sense, pollution profits. Won't these white folks come and pick up the damn trash? America is a false idol. All my people iconoclast. Look out the window at all that. Goddamn, what is he protecting? Ain't nothing here ours but scraps of metal melted all down, why don't you? Some homes are worth less than their copper pipes, this metallic stew pot boiling over. My ancestors bartered their gold teeth for green, earned heart disease and curdled cream dreams instead as the planet warms another degree. Mama says my degree won't save me. Suppose cash really does rule everything around me. I wonder what rich bones can broth a new vanguard. Nigga, can I get a witness? America is a malignant tumor. Oh, how I long to capitalize this intrusion in our collective heartbeat, beating away at the floorboards of good sense until the spirits rattle around pushing daisies, memory stinging nettle unsilenced. Watch the good earth reclaim clunkers for cash. Nostalgia makes a mockery of present. The open face sores on my uncle's knuckles attribute to this nation's success. I won't bullshit you. He reeks of burnt sienna and ember. It all reeks of pirated pyrite. Fool's gold. I talk too much about my grandmother's hands because they thresh this country. Great migration granny built Ford tough. A gorgeous ghost gnarled into graphics. Look closely. You can see flakes of calluses soldered to your car's lithium battery. I talk too much about my grandmother's hands because they became cracked by bleach, ammonia, 
everything meant to whiten and purge bacteria. She passed down her genealogy of anguish, lead-hardened blood, black lung coughing up embattled blues. Wasn't the tin man once chopping through scorched earth, too? My gut is filled with vengeful microorganisms. Today and every day beyond grief, I throw my grease against any surface in need of shine. America, define yourself a country exactly. My offering, a knotted bellyache of sadness born beyond a destined horizon, manifested. The embers of our lost selves tumbling across the West Coast, even the mountains seem to collapse with sadness. The spine of the uninherited earth curved like that of a funeral wailer, an assembly line aggravating access, all that rust corroding our good sense. Riddle me this, how can I be well when my lawn is always burning? Such an important poem. It feels like an, an anthem being read out. I feel like if I was the being... If I was the next president of the United States, this would be my inauguration poem right here. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and read the writing prompt based off this poem. And just a reminder again, you can find the writing prompts on our website. Life cycle is a commentary on the current state of America viewed through the lens of a personal and familial perspective. It describes America as a factory, a landfill, a false idol, a malignant tumor. The poem also highlights the racial and economic disparities in America, with Black people often being at the receiving end of the negative effects of pollution and waste. Start off by writing down America is blank, and write four descriptors of the United States. Take each of these America is lines and make them their own stanza. Under each heading, write why you see America in this way. From here, I want to get into the poems that were inspired by you and your writing. While none of them are directly taking the writing prompts I brought in there, it's still really important to see what they're writing kind of inspired by you. And it's fun to see how, you know, they kind of came about inspired by your work. Would you want to read the poem, When is Enough, please? Absolutely. And I must say, I also really like the spacing on this poem, too. Very mm, cool. Me too. When is enough? When is enough? When is enough? When is enough? When is enough of the lying? When is enough of the blinding? When is enough of the hiding? Tell me when is enough. Tell me when is enough of these games, exposing your true self. Stop hiding your colors. You run it back, that's the side that you hear and wonder. Got your little thing choking on the truth from under. If you hear on the side, I saved your ass sometime. So when is enough? I know you're getting tired of being up under the rain, making you drain feeding your ass that good that you came. Born with smoke in my veins, obliterating the game. Fuck the money and the fame, don't mention the name. Put you in the world for a minute, that's the ode. So when this poem's over, you decide if you're gonna ride. When is enough? When is enough? You mentioned the spacing, and just to let you all know, these poems you can be found again on our website, roughdrafttx.org. And the spacing you're talking about is kind of like it gives a little bit of breath between each of the repetitions. So obviously the line that's repeated several times is when is enough. And the very first line has when is enough three times, but there's just a little bit of spacing between each one that kind of like, I don't know, for me it emphasizes the like exhaustion of you know this feeling of when is enough. 
And then even towards the very center of the poem, we get the win is enough again, and it's on its own line. And it has a completely different feeling with like these longer lines around it to where it feels so isolated by itself. And again, just by kind of repeating these three words over and over in different ways on the page, it like brings up a different emotional connotation to it. Definitely. Yeah. I'll also say that just from, you know, having my insider information that the person who wrote this also outside of seeing it as a poem, saw it as a song and he kind of like R and B style song, sang it for us in, you know, in our workshop setting, which was really cool and kind of a special thing. And it's something I really wish there was a way for us to share that version with you. That's awesome. But unfortunately not, but yeah, anything you want to praise about the poem, go for it. Yeah. It's, um, so melodic. I totally see the song. Yeah, at first I thought that it was like, it might've been like bars, like a rap, but I can see the song too. Has like a very, I mean, it has that sort of like chorus, you know, like repetitiveness. Mm-hmm. But like you said, it's like, it's like kind of different every time. It's speaking to a different like kind of exhaustion each time mm-hmm. or a different kind of like impatience, which I think that the two can very much live together. So yeah, thank you. Thank you for this person for putting, I wish I could have heard the song. Yeah, I know. I wish I could have shared that with you. Would you mind reading the second poem here, Haunted House? Haunted House. This is the home that I provide. It may seem dark and uninspired, but such are things after the fire. For my passion, flame, torment, and blame keep my hidden from the lame. Safe and sound from those around, I try my best to be, otherwise they'd all surround. For I am truly free. You're welcomed in my haunted house where the blessings flow like waterfalls. And with your love and my great seed, together we'll begin to see new life blooming as giving trees. Now all that seemed denied by one, slowly embraced by the new sun. At peace and love, the kid has won. You really add so much to these poems and your reading of them. It's so great. Like your pacing and, you know, matching the words is great. I'm sure they'll really appreciate when they get to hear that. Oh, thanks. One thing that really sticks out to me in this poem is just like the images or kind of like the places that the poem takes me. And while it's called Haunted House and, you know, like even right off the bat, it kind of puts us in this kind of like weird kind of like creepy place. Like, you know, we go from flames, torment and blame, and then we go to these place of being truly free and then we get waterfalls and talking about love and great seed and it's just like i feel like i think of uh like almost a fun house you know when you walk into a fun house and they have those different mirrors you walk in front of and things are kind of just like moving and changing shape like at an instant like that's kind of what it feels like going through this poem is just the knee jerk after like each line is like you think i'm going here nope i'm going here you think i'm going here nope i'm going here which is really fun the like unexpectedness of this poem absolutely i love um when I see like being like haunted house, I think of kind of like shadow work. Mm-hmm. Like you have embracing, you know, the pieces of you that are darker or that are, you know, like you're not as thrilled about, but like, you know, that's, a, that's a piece of you that exists. And how do you know, how do you work through some of these things to move to like a brighter sort of future? It's like kind of like embracing, like, yeah, you know, we all kind of like live in these haunted houses, but we also have the power to make them into, you know, like these, these beautiful images to get, to have, you know, like new life blooming and to have these blessings full like waterfalls. So it's like a cool kind of like, like you like a cool kind of switch. Mm-hmm. And it's also interesting, like, you know, the first half of the poem is kind of the darker 
talking about things being hidden and that's where you get the flame and the torment but then we're welcomed to the haunted house about the midway point and that's when things are actually not the creepy you know they're not the dark they're not the sinister too so that's kind of like you know it's almost flipping this idea of what the haunted house could be it's like it's almost like yeah there is the torment but welcome to this place which you know it's it's weird but there's other things happening there's peace there's love Mm -hmm. (laughs) there's embrace yeah which i think is really cool again there's this the juxtaposition of expectation and things like that in this poem is what's really working and then ending the last two lines at peace and love the kid the kid being capitalized has won so Mm -hmm. we can almost feel like the the eye of the speaker of the poem is like ending in a place of triumph and then that's really cool especially starting from such a dark place yeah the third poem we have here is move on and then parentheses letters for you or letter for you would you mind reading that one absolutely move on letter for you got to move on to better things can't put pleasure first while i am in the rain because if i do she's going to hold me back from everything Make me go in circles and relapse. I'm just stating facts. Homie, you gotta let her go because in the end, you're gonna end up behind bars. A contemptuous woman, you gotta stay away, giving y'all a warning of the day. Saving your ass, being behind the glass, go get you some money like money running on the paper. Just a nigga Darth Vader that nobody heard or knows. (laughs) I love love poems. I love like, even if they're breakup poems, even if they're sad love poems, Mm -hmm. I feel like we need more of them. <laughs> it's true. You don't see too many out there and just being like, not enough people are writing love poems, myself included. I'm really bad right. at it. <laughs> I, know, I know this is, you know, this is me calling myself out here too. <laughs> I need to write more. One thing that really sticks out to me is the very last line. It says, the character in Star Wars, Darth Vader, but this one says, Dark Vader that nobody heard or knows, mm-hmm. which I think is just kind of a cool, like, twist on what our expectation is there too and then just thinking about the person who wrote it and just kind of like you know commenting on maybe the color of their skin and just kind of like seeing how you know they might be seen as evil just kind Mm -hmm. of like that kind of play at the very end is especially in a love poem where you know that that little bit is unexpected which i thought was a really cool way to end it i was in a workshop once with the poet brenda shaughnessy and she talked about especially like when you're reading poems and if you can't, you know, find your way into it um, or you're like looking for revision and like looking for like, you know, ways to think about the poem. And granted, this one is pretty clear, but I always like to read poems with her recommendation in mind is she would always fold the poem in half, like from the center point and just seeing what's in like the very center of the poem. And she's like, oftentimes like that very center moment, like whatever's happening there is like the heart of the poem. Like that's what the poet is trying to get at. And I think it works out really well here because the very center line, homie, you got to let her go. Cause in the end you're going to end up behind bars. And it's just like yeah. thinking about that line. And again, for people who want to look, who don't have the poem pulled up in front of them, that line is actually longer than all the other ones too. So it kind sticks out you know even outside of being in the very center and just like something about that line and just seeing it and thinking about like someone writing this poem from a carceral setting and writing it and thinking like maybe even a reflection on past mistakes and the people who they have pulled down and like thinking of a breakup poem as like a oh i've harmed you and this is why the breakup is necessary like just seems like such like a turn of expectation 
Yeah. I feel like a love poem, even when it is a love poem, it's not it's not just a love poem. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. it brings up so many other emotions, though there's so many backstories. You definitely see that in this poem. Yeah, there's so many emotions attached to love. Chances are the person who is on the receiving end of that love or, you know, you've shared so many of life experiences with them or, you know, so much has happened that you can't just talk about love without talking about so much else. That makes total sense. Mm-hmm. The next poem we have here is called Airwalks and Chucks. Would you mind reading that one? All right. Airwalks and Chucks. The dog follows his nose, seeing beyond good and bad, trusting in the righteous and beautiful. The lying found trying are buying now flying, open mouths in disbelief, denying conditioned acceptable grief. You're being converted to gnarly all-stars, airwalks and the chucks, good talks and good fucks. All will be free for a couple of bucks. Where you'll never say, man, this world sucks. Pretending to suffer, old man has now died. Killed him with fair kindness, no way he would mind. Reborn on an airplane, unknown to the blind. The vision of destiny was for him to find. Interdependent, created, invented. The broken is helping the wanted and spoken. The poet has legs others wish to beg. No effort required, exhausted and tired. The past was found failing, unworthy, and fired. As the one from my rib yelled out, shotgun dibs, following the one's light heart fell deep in the night. The rhyme and alliteration in this poem really do a mm-hmm. lot of work here, driving this thing from line to line. It's so cool. I think if you got like out a highlighter and just like kind of highlighted the different rhyme patterns and different like uh, alliteration patterns in here, it'd be like such a rainbow of color, just seeing like yeah. how much is tied in there. It makes me think, I don't know, this went around years ago when I think maybe the third album from Chance the Rapper came out. There's just like people highlighting like, oh, just see like all the amazing work he's doing just by highlighting the different colors. And I'm like... Just it definitely makes me think of that of like all of the different rhymes happening in here and where they might happen at the top and come back at the bottom and then alliteration here and then it comes back there. It's just so cool, like all the word work they're doing in here. It's something I feel is like doesn't happen as much anymore. We don't see as much use of like, especially this much use of like rhyme and alliteration. And when it's done in such a cool way, like this one, where it's you know it's it's kind of creating its own world through just like the rhythm of the poem. I really appreciate that. Yeah, I also I'm I'm like the first line, the dog follows his nose, oh is God. really cool because I guess you know for people who. If you're looking on the site, you'll see it. But right now it's nose, K-N-O-W-S. Mm-hmm. But it's like a very fun kind of like play. Like, you know, dogs follow their nose. Yeah. But this dog is like following what he knows. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's a really, I like that. That was like my favorite part, that opening. I think it just set up like the whole poem like so well. Totally. Yeah, this poet, they're really good at kind of, wordplay and then taking that wordplay in a direction that like goes off any expectation which is really cool and Mm -hmm. just that simple like changing n-o-s-e to k-n-w-s just sets up where this poem is going to go we know where just that simple change like allows us as readers to know that like this isn't going to stay in like you know a familiar world it's going to kind of go somewhere else and 
I think also the subtle thing it does for me is it, it kind of sets up like, you know, the dog follows his nose, like it's following his own mm. beliefs, his own mm. system. And it almost feels like if you kind of read thinking of that idea, like a criticism of, you know, maybe organized religion in a way and maybe in a way of like, hey, don't follow this dogma, like, you know, like there are other ways of thinking about things like there's talking about conversion in here and disbelief and acceptance. And I just feel like it's kind of a cool like critique in its own like subtle way of religion, at least to me. Absolutely. Another line I wanted to talk about is one of my favorites is it's towards the middle pretending to suffer old man has now died, mm -hmm. killed him with fair kindness, no way he would mind. It's just like really cool thinking about this idea of, well, like death, someone dying, but just thinking of this idea like, oh, this person was killed with kindness, which is again, kind of like a, you know, like a common phrase, but it's played around with. And he's like, oh, this man, he doesn't mind that our my kindness killed him because it was the kindness that killed him. You know, it's like, yeah similar to the dog follows his nose, just kind of taking these common idioms and just like turning them on their head and making them into these fun, silly poem, which is just like, right. yeah, it's just, I enjoy the, again, we, as we talked about earlier, imagination, I enjoy the imagination created in this mm -hmm. poem. Definitely. We have one poem left here called what goes on in a cell. Would you mind reading that one? Absolutely. What goes on in a cell? Well, shit hell. Let me tell you what I do through the day. I just rewind and play and make a song. It's like a job. Can I carry on what be happening? And I be laughing and rapping. Put my finger on the chrome tapping. Sometimes I be napping. No, I ain't capping. And I'm not talking about Captain Crunch. Should his chow him got to go, man. I'm just going with the flow. You see us incarcerated, the world needs. That last line, again, it's like a kind of a twist on how you would expect the line to be written. Like you would expect mm -hmm. it like the world needs um, you to see us incarcerated. Yeah. But just by flipping it on its head, you see us incarcerated, the world needs. Like, I don't know, just something about that completely changes the emotion of it and just mm -hmm. completely changes like how us as readers kind of in, are interpreting it and going about the poem. It's just like, I don't know it just that subtle mm -hmm. shift of the last line and rearranging of words just changes the whole thing for me. This poem is kind of like, it's almost, I don't know, like cheeky in a way, because mm -hmm. I think also like, especially for a lot of folks who have never known anybody who's been incarcerated or who doesn't know a lot about, you know, like jails or prisons, there's so much like TV and media dedicated to like dramatizing, like, you know, like what, goes on in a cell you know okay. and he like or excuse me like this this writer just like literally starts off with like i just rewind and play like which is <laughs> which makes it like okay like yeah you wanted to you want to know what i do i occupy my time because like that's that's like what i'm doing like you know yeah. I, like i don't really have anything like for you to like feed off of like this is just kind of like this is my life and um, sometimes, sometimes I'll be laughing. Sometimes I'll be rapping. I got to go to chow, man. I'm just going with the flow. Like, mm -hmm. this is just like my life. And then, like you said, that last line, reading that you see us incarcerated, the world needs. Um, I think of that in relation to the rest of the poem, like 
yeah, the un- unfortunately the way that the world works now is like we do need folks incarcerated, mm-hmm. like and and that's just like how we like kind of keep a lot of these systems running and but also again for like back to that kind of entertainment value. Wow, they did a lot of cool stuff in a very short, <laughs> very like a, a short poem. Yes, this is two, four, six, um, seven lines long, so mm-hmm. it's really short. Yeah, the the playfulness of this poem is just kind of like it. Honestly, almost feels like a fuck you to like people who are like, oh my god, what is happening inside the jails? So, like not in a real concerned way, but like yeah, yeah. someone who watches the news and that's like their interpretation of jail, or watches like. TV shows, which, you know, aren't actually looking at what life is like in jail. And that is the representation. And this guy's like, oh, you want to know what's actually happening? Let me open the door for you. And it's just Mm -hmm. kind of like a almost mocks them in such a fun, playful way. And just like you said, and it's like, you want to know, let me rewind. And then it's just kind of like this list of mundane things that it's just like, this is our reality. We're stuck in this situation where, as, as it even says, going with the flow this is that's that is the reality that i'm in you know like it's in its humor it shines a light on something that could be hard to capture in another way which i really appreciate one thing i notice about these poems or kind of like as a collective is you know kind of this sense of urgency a little bit of like change you know we get the win is enough we get the haunted house one that had the like shift from like you know this torment to like wanting to feel this peace uh we get them moving on we get you know like a change in there airwalk and chucks in its own way is like doing these this juxtaposition work that's really fun it's change in there and then the final one obviously kind of changing expectations and it's fun to think about you know that is what your work has inspired is like people wanting to be like, Hey, this is, this is where things currently are. And this is how change could happen. So like, this is where like, whether it's relationship and change, whether it's like um, people's expectation of what's happening in jails and change or personal feelings of like, when is enough being, you know, personally feel like they're trapped in this torment and like in the haunted house, like, you know, your work is working while it may be kind of geared towards at least, um, you know, life cycles, kind of environmental change or kind of views of America, porches, you know, kind of its own um, little world is creating there. And then running, we get, you know, this larger kind of societal view change. And I think it's definitely clear that they could see this, your your urgency of, you know, like uh, need of change or like change of how things are happening. And I think that's coming through for them. Is there anything kind of like on a whole you want to um, say about their work at all? Yeah. First, um, thank you for sharing your work. This is so cool. And there's like, I mean, there's like the Octavia Butler quote, like goddess change. Mm -hmm. And I see that very much reflected in these poems. Like, you know, even in conversation with my own work, just what again, the power of imagination and the power and the power to like name our conditions, but also name something beyond that, that we want. And to also just like, also just like the, 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 the power of just naming our own reality, mm-hmm. because so often, um, especially if you are marginalized and I'm including, you know, like incarcerated folks in that because a lot of incarcerated folks are from marginalized backgrounds, but I would say mm-hmm. as a group, you know, incarcerated individuals are marginalized. Yeah. Oftentimes you are told your own narrative 
or what is expected again, which is why that last poem is like so funny to me because <laughs> he's like, okay, like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you want to know? Totally. Um, I'll tell you. Mm-hmm. And just to, to the, the power and being able to say like, no, this is like what my reality actually is, um, mm-hmm. is, is really, really important and really compelling. And also just like really necessary, I think, to exchange among folks, because again, like one person naming their own reality may give another person um, the power, the desire to name theirs. Totally. Oh, that's so beautiful. I think we're going to end there because that feels like such a powerful moment to end on and let people sit and think about the the power in these writing. So I want to thank Ashia Ajani for sitting down with me today. I also want to thank the incarcerated folks in our program that shared their work with us, as well as the San Marcos Arts Commission for making this project possible. A special thank you to our sound engineer, Nathan Parnell, and graphics designer, Jules Tunnell. Until next time.